Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. The last couple of weeks, obviously I've been on quite a few different airplanes and you know what it's like when you sit down on an airplane, you immediately start wondering, okay, who's going to wind up in this seat next to me, right? And you start hoping it's not that guy, right? And you know what I mean by that guy. You just are praying it's not that guy, and you're watching with great anticipation as every person files past you, and you start seeing those people and thinking, man, I hope it's not that one, right? And then when they get past you, it's like, whoo, hey, man, I made it that far, right? Well, then finally, whoever's beside you sits down there, and I, I was sitting there, and the man sat down beside me and, and seemed like it was going to be all right, so I'm thinking, good, I got a good one. You know, I didn't, I didn't draw the, the wild card, and he sits down beside me, and he reaches into his bag, and he pulls out a book that he's going to read on our flight, and, you know, I'm trying to be as non-intrusive as I can, but I'm also kind of like, you know, trying to see what he's reading, so I'm trying to kind of widening my eyes and trying to read over and see what's on his book. And all I can make out is a big word right in the middle of the book. And it's the, right on the cover in big, bold print. Here's what it said. The Quran. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. I thought, man, I'm anxious to see where we're going now. And so he pulls this book out, and he's look, and, he, and and I don't know if he could feel me looking to see, but immediately, almost as if he's apologizing, he says, "Hey, I want you to see what I'm reading." And in the fine print above the word the Quran, it says this: "The Complete Infidel's Guide to the Quran." And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, right? And I, 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 I guess he, he, he was just wanting me to know it wasn't a Quran in case I was an air marshal. He was just trying to make sure that we were all good, right? So, so what I came to learn about this gentleman and about this particular book, I don't know much about the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into it. But what I became to, came to understand about him is he is a professing Christian who met a young man from the nation of Turkey who was uh, of the Islamic faith. And the Christian man, <laughs> in conversation with this young man from Turkey, just became overwhelmed with, as a Christian in America, how little he knew, not only about his own faith, but about what the peoples of the world believed and why they believed what they believed. So he'd purchased this particular book because it was recommended to him by someone as kind of a, a guidebook that would kind of introduce you to the Quran, but also point out some of the inconsistencies and some of the comparisons between that and the Bible. And again, I've not read the book, not recommending the book, but that was his story. And so we begin to dialogue and talk about what he's been reading. 
And I always, when I'm on an airplane sitting with someone, I try as long as I can to avoid the question, what do you do? Because as soon as I tell somebody what I do, the conversation takes a drastic turn in one of two different directions. And so I just try to avoid it as long as I can, because as long as they think I'm normal, right, (laughs) they'll talk to me. It's when they find out that I'm one of those guys that a lot of times the conversation just goes haywire. And so, so we're, we're talking about what he's been reading, and he's, he starts talking about He says, hey, so how do you, did, did you know, for example, he's telling me, he's just fascinated by what he's learning. Did you know, for example, that, that the, the, the Quran was written by one man in one time period? And even though it was written by one man in one setting, the Quran, he began to explain, according to him, was filled with inconsistency and conflicting messages. And he said, did you know that our Bible that we believe in was not written by one person at one time and yet our Bible? And so we began to talk about the difference between the Quran. And I told him, I said, you know, it's not just the Quran. There are other so-called holy books that are just like that. One of the uniquenesses about the Bible is that the Quran, the Book of Mormon, for example, one author, one time period, and yet neither of those books stands the test of historical criticism. When you begin to put them under the microscope, they're filled with inconsistencies and they're filled with conflicting messages. And yet when you study the Bible, I told him, I said, when you look at the Bible, the Bible was not written as one book. The Bible was written as 66 different books. The Bible was written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. The Bible was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors, and the Bible was written by those authors over a period of over 1,500 years, meaning that some of those authors did not even live in the same millennium, and yet even though the Bible was written with all of that diversity, it has stood the test of historical criticism and today stands as a book that has been defended as speaking one message from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So, so then he turns to me and says, so, so what do you do? <laughs> and I had to tell him at that point, right? He's like, well, man, I thought you sure do know a lot about this stuff. <laughs> but that's the reality of the Bible. Josh McDowell was an atheist who became a Christian. And here's how Josh McDowell became a Christian. Josh McDowell set aside a thousand hours of his life and said, I'm going to dedicate a thousand hours to disproving the Bible and Christianity. He locked himself away in a cabin. He took a set of books and a Bible, and his goal was in a thousand hours to disprove Christianity. At the end of the thousand hours, he came out having given his life to Jesus Christ, become a born again Christian, and he now speaks on college campuses all over the world defending the historicity and accuracy of the Bible and the Christian faith. Here's what Josh McDowell says about the Bible. He said the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places, stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life, kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. Yet it speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end. God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No person could have possibly conceived of or written such a work. That is what we hold in our hands 
as the Word of God, the Bible. The Bible is one story from Genesis to Revelation. And if, if you're visiting with us this weekend, as a family of faith, a few weeks ago, we began a journey verse by verse through a New Testament book called 1 Peter. And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. We'll begin to read that in just a moment. But in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to a group of Christians. He introduces us to them in verses 1 and 2. And this group of Christians are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They're scattered because of persecution. They feel isolated. They feel separated. They feel segregated. They're facing all kinds of difficult situation because of their faith. And Simon Peter, in his letter, is writing them about what we just talked about, about the Bible, because he is encouraging them that they are not alone, but they are a part of a much bigger story. These Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire are a part of a story that is God's eternal purpose. It could really be characterized with one simple phrase, and that phrase is the gospel. The gospel is God's eternal purpose. It is the redemptive story of God on this earth. It's a story that began in eternity past. It is a story that has been carried out through the history of the world, and it is a story that is moving towards an incredible climax. And as we study this passage of Scripture today, here's what I want you to hear, and here's what I hope by the Holy Spirit of God you wrap your heart around today. You and I are a part of a much bigger story. Listen, Christianity is not just a little pick-me-up to help you make it through the week. Christianity is not just some self-help philosophy to make us feel better. Christianity is a story of God that began in eternity, that's being fleshed out in history, and one day is moving towards a glorious celebration. My wife and I have some things that we have different philosophies about, I guess is a fair way to say it. I, I think that's probably true of every husband and wife, right? Some of you just nudged your spouse as soon as I said it. So sometimes as husbands and wives, we can see things differently. One of the areas that my wife and I see very differently is how you read a book. My wife, for example, believes that the way you read a book is you first turn all the way to the end. And you find out how the book ends. Now, that absolutely drives me crazy. And there are a lot of you in the room that agree with me today, right? Amen? Yeah, come on. Now, I know there's a lot of you that think just like my wife, but we're praying for you, all right? Now, uh, I don't know how. I mean, it ruins the entire book. See, now, Now, my wife, she believes by reading the end 
then she determines whether or not the rest of the book deserves her time, right? If, if the end of the book's no good, why waste my time with all the rest of it? Now, we, we, we laugh about it, we joke about it, we talk about it all the time in our household because we have such a different perspective towards reading books. But here's what I want you to know. In this instance, my wife's philosophy is really good because here's what I want you to hear me say. I've read the end of the story. I have read the end of the redemptive story of God. And let me just tell you, it's a glorious ending. Where this story is moving, the grand climax, the glorious conclusion, the celebration that is to come, you and I have got something great to look forward to. As a matter of fact, let me read it to you. In Revelation chapter 5, we get to read an account from the end of the story. Revelation chapter 5, look at verse number 6. Here's what John, the writer, says. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a, say it out loud, kingdom and priests to our God. And read the rest with me. And they will reign upon the earth. What a glorious climate. Here's what John writes for us. One day Jesus Christ is going to return. Every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every nation will be gathered around the throne of Jesus Christ in a glorious celebration. We will, be, we will forever be the kingdom of God and will reign with him for all eternity. Now, now, now some of you looking at me like... Nah. Ooh, that sounds pretty far out there. I don't know about that. Listen, what we're reading is not a fairy tale. What we're reading is the sovereign revelation of God to a man by the name of John who saw it and wrote it down. What we're seeing is already so done in eternity past that John writes it as a completed story. What we're reading is not pie in the sky by and by. One day, if you are a child of God, you will be there when it happens and see it with your eyes. Some of you, I'm going to be there. I'm going to run up to you and say, I told you so. Because you're looking at me like, ah. So just get ready. But right now, Peter's writing to encourage us that we're a part of something bigger. Here he's writing to these persecuted Christians. In America, it's often not persecution that robs us of the insight and reality that we're a part of something bigger. In America, often it's prosperity. You see, we got so much that we think it's about us. 
And at best, we think God's given us what we have so we can give a little bit towards that. But what Peter's writing us to encourage us is that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are a part of a much bigger story. It's a story that began in eternity past in the heart of God. It's a story that's being carried out in history, and we're watching it unfold. And it's a story that's moving towards this grand climax. So let's read what Simon Peter says to these believers in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to pick it up in verse number 10. Here's what he says. As to this salvation. Which salvation? The salvation that he's talking about. This story of the gospel. This redemptive purpose of God. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ, don't miss this, within them, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them, these prophets from days gone by, that they were not serving themselves, but you. hear that. They were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You hear what he's saying? They wrote it down hundreds of years ago, but they wrote it down in service to you today so that as you hear the gospel, it confirms that you're a part of something that's been going on way before you got involved in it. It's a bigger story. And then look what he says. Things into which the angels long to look. Let me share with you three realities about the gospel that Peter shares with this group that is for us today to help us understand that we are part of a much bigger story. Number one, the gospel was foretold by the prophets. Peter writes to them and says in verse number 10 that the prophets prophesied about this salvation. That just makes sense. That's what prophets do, right? They prophesy. Well, that's what they did. And this, this word for prophecy here is not like the spiritual gift of prophecy in the New Testament, which is speaking out of the authority of God's word into people's lives. This is the word prophecy here is a word that literally means to foretell future events under the divine inspiration and influence of the Holy Spirit of God. They were foretellers. They could tell the future through the Spirit of God within them speaking. Here's what he's saying. Hundreds of years. I want you to hear that. Hundreds of years, not a few weeks or months. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked on planet earth. Hundreds of years before he came. The prophets spoke in detail about everything he would accomplish. Let that sink in for a minute. Hundreds of years. You see, believers in the Old Testament were saved like we are today, by faith in the work of the Messiah. We are saved looking back 
to what Jesus has accomplished. They were saved by faith looking forward based on what they were being told through the law and the prophets. As the prophets spoke, they were saved by faith. That's why it says of Abraham in the Old Testament that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. These prophets spoke in great detail and they did that not by coming up with dreams on their own. The Bible says it was the Spirit of Christ within them. The Holy Spirit of God in them showed them, that's that word indicate, to make known. He was indicating to them, he was making known to them things that were going to happen in the future, and they wrote them down. And he tells us specifically two things that they made known. Number one, he said they spoke of the sufferings of Christ, speaking specifically about the cross of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. The prophets, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, told us, that Jesus would come, and when he came, he would die for the sins of the world. I want to read it to you. Isaiah chapter 53. Now, before we read this, I want to say it again. What I'm about to read for you was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And listen, even non-Christian scholars would agree with that. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in the 1940s, Prove the historical accuracy of the book of Isaiah. Everything that Isaiah wrote has been been verified and it's passed the test of historical criticism after the Dead Sea Scroll discovery. So this is not just a Christian thing. Even non-Christians would agree. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote what I'm about to read to you. Listen to what he said. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was, listen, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. A crystal clear declaration of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That Jesus would come and take all of our sin on himself and die for us. And it's written 700 years before Jesus was born. How in the world could Isaiah know that? God was telling him the story. It's a story that began in eternity past and was fleshing out in history. And Isaiah is writing it down. And the Bible says Isaiah didn't write that down and tell us for his day. He told us for us so that today we can look back. He was serving us by showing us, listen, this isn't some new thing that started in Jerusalem. This has been going on since the history, since the beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created. Even back before that, in eternity past, God had established a redemptive story. And throughout history, this story has been written. But not just about the cross. The prophets also, the Bible says in 1 Peter, didn't just tell us about the sufferings of Christ, but the glories to follow. Remember what we just read in Revelation chapter 5 about that glorious scene at the end of the age? I want to read you something that was written hundreds of years 
before Jesus walked on planet earth by a man named Daniel. Listen to what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That Listen to this. That all peoples, nations, and men of every language may serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Hundreds of years. It's like they'd read the end of the book. Or the one inspiring it is the one that established the story in eternity past as a sovereign God sitting on the throne of the universe and is carrying out his redemptive story of which we're sitting here in 2014 in Las Vegas and we're a part of that really big story. The gospel was foretold by the prophets. Here's the second thing. The gospel was accomplished by Jesus. Everything the prophets prophesied. Listen, it's one thing to make all these prophecies. It's something else for what they prophesied to actually happen. And listen to me. It all happened. Every single detail foretold by the prophets was accomplished in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when I say every detail, you've got to understand, some of these details are they're, they're pretty radical. For example, Isaiah told us that Jesus would be born of a virgin. That don't just happen every day. The prophet Micah told us the city that the Messiah would be born into. Anybody in here get a pick on what city you were born into? I mean, these are not things that you could just kind of read that and then kind of make your life fit around those things. The, the, the prophets told us in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah told us, and back in Genesis as well, who the Messiah's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great. Anybody in the room get to pick? The line and lineage that you came from. The kind of stuff that the prophets outlined was stuff that was beyond comprehension. As a matter of fact, one of the prophets in the book of Psalms prophesied that Jesus would die through crucifixion 600 years before crucifixion was invented as a means of execution. Wrap your head around that. He prophesied he'd die by a death that had not even been invented yet. And yet Jesus didn't just fulfill one of these. Every single prophecy from hundreds and some of them thousands of years before Jesus was born. Every one of them was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There was a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks and he studied the mathematical probability of one man fulfilling the prophecies from the Old Testament. And he just took the top eight because if you take all of them, it's like a mathematical impossibility. 
So he just took the top eight. Here's the probability of one man fulfilling just the top eight prophecies, the most difficult prophecies. It's one in ten to the 17th power. That means one out of a one followed by 17 zeros. Mathematicians would tell you that that means it's a mathematical impossibility. It's never going to happen. And not only did he fulfill eight, he fulfilled every single prophecy. Here's the the magnitude of that statement. Imagine taking the state of Texas and covering the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. That's one in ten to the 17th power. Two feet deep, silver dollars, state of Texas. You mark one of them with a red X. You blindfold somebody and tell them, give it your best shot. Go find the silver dollar with the red X. That's the probability of one man fulfilling just eight. And Jesus fulfilled them all. How is that possible? Listen, God's eternal purpose to redeem a people unto himself and establish a kingdom that will reign forever was prophesied in the past, but it was fully accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. The story that you and I belong to is a really big story. It's a big story. Here's the third and final thing I want to spend the rest of our time talking about. This story is still being written today. The gospel is being proclaimed in the world. You see, God in His sovereignty, if you're a follower of Jesus, (coughs) has now brought you into the story and desires to use you to tell the story. We get to share in the mission of God. There there are two ways that, that, that I want you to see that this story is still being written. Number one, today. Today, we get to experience the power of the gospel. For me it happened. In September of 1989. I was a college student at the University of North Alabama. I'd been raised in a Christian family. My mom and dad were what's called first generation Christians. You say what does that mean? It means that my grandparents and my great grandparents were not Christians. My mom and dad both became Christians as teenagers. They had neighbors that loved the Lord enough to share the gospel (laughs) with some teenagers who lived in their neighborhood. And those people shared the gospel with my mom and dad who lived in separate neighborhoods, separate towns at the time. One in Birmingham, Alabama. One in Florence, Alabama. There was a deacon at a Baptist church that came across the street and started talking to my dad when he was a 12-year-old little boy about Jesus. And my dad and mom both through those testimonies, gave their lives to Christ, became born again. They met years later, married. And my brother and I, my brother Brett, he's about six years younger than me. We were both born into a family where mom and dad loved Jesus and they taught us the gospel. They taught us what it was to be Christian. They taught us all that Jesus accomplished for us. But for me growing up most of my life, it was just a story. It was just a, a, a thing that everybody did in the town where I was. Everybody went to church. Everybody had a church they went to. Everybody hung out at the church. It was just part of the way of life there for me growing up. And it wasn't until I was a freshman in college. And it kind of had reached the end of myself and trying a bunch of other stuff. And 
realized that the answer lied in what I'd been taught my whole life. And I knelt down beside my bed in September of 1989 there in a little apartment in Florence, Alabama, and I cried out to God. And I surrendered the control of my life to Jesus Christ. And I, by faith, embraced the story of the gospel. I trusted Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection as the provision for my sin. I realized that I had sinned against a holy God and that I deserved eternal separation from God, but that God in his grace loved me so much that he gave his son Jesus to die on a cross that I didn't have to spend eternity separated from him. And Jesus rose again from the dead. And that night, I surrendered the control of my life to Jesus. And let me tell you what happened for me. I experienced the power power of the gospel. I was born again into a personal relationship with God where I was dead. Listen, in that moment, I became alive. And I today say with Paul in Romans 1, when he said, I am not ashamed of the power of the gospel, for, or not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Today, we get to experience the power power of the gospel. And I know what I just shared. For many of you, that's your story. Maybe it wasn't an apartment in college, but at some point in your life, you came face to face with the face to face with the eternal redemptive story of God, and you ran into that collision course where you were a sinner and you were separated from a holy God, but you realized the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the provision that was available in Christ, and you experienced the power of the gospel. Listen, if you know what it is to be born again and experience the power of the gospel, would you just say amen? Listen, for some of you today, (laughs) today's your day. Today is the day God in His sovereignty has orchestrated everything in your life to this divine moment. When God is making known to you the incredible redemptive story of God. And today, guess what? Your story is going to become a part of the story. For some of you today, you get to experience the power of the gospel. But a second way today, not only do we get to experience the power of the gospel, but today we get to share in the mission of the gospel. And listen to me, this mission, it's global. Over the last two and a half weeks, I've, I've been to different parts of the world, and I have seen firsthand again, been many times overseas, but this time just realized again, man, God is alive and at work all over the world. Brian and I got on an airplane Monday morning two and a half weeks ago and sit on that airplane and we take off to travel. You know, where we were headed, you can't get there direct from anywhere. There's like four stops that you got to make and you get off planes, get on other planes and it's about a 30-something hour trek to the other side of the world. Then you finally land and you don't know whether it's day or night or what day of the week it is and they pick you up in a car and we drive a couple of hours north right up to a little border town and we're there for a couple of days. Then we drive three hours across a border. and We have to cross a border like secret agents. It's like we're on some kind of spy mission. And we're, man, we get into this other country and we're in this country where we don't know what we're doing. We don't speak the language. We're, we we, we kind of stand out. You know, I'm like a giant over there. And they take us and they put us in this little car and they drive us three hours north. And we get up to this incredibly remote area in this nation where we are, where Believers are regularly and systematically imprisoned for the gospel. There were six men that we heard of while we were there who, while we're there, they're in wooden stocks, hands and feet. 
because they will not stop preaching the gospel. All they got to do, they, they'll let them meet. You just don't preach it. Don't tell anybody else. You stop, we'll leave you alone. But they won't. Wooden stocks, hands and feet. They have to lay on their side. Not allowed to bring them food. We're driving north. We get off the beaten path. And I mean, we're, we're where Jesus had to have in his mind when he said the remotest part of the earth. It had to be this spot. We drive past a temple where they, a little lean-to temple where they sacrifice animals and shed the blood and spread the blood to try to appease the spirit gods that they believe exist in that area and are ruling and dominating their lives. We get past this little spirit temple worshiping hut and we're out there. They tell us where we're going. We're going to meet with this new church. Believers that some of them only weeks, some just a few months, some a couple of years at most had begun to meet together. The gospel had gone there through this church planter who'd given his life to take the gospel to them. This little man, and he goes and he preaches and this church is born. And they tell us before we get there, hey, you need to know that the believers are gathered in the house and they've been waiting on you guys all day. They said, don't be shocked. The little kids, most of them don't wear clothes. They'll be naked in the room there with us. And so we're, Brian and I, I'm sure our eyes are about, you know, this big around at this point. And we drive up to this little house that they use as a gathering place. And here's a picture of this little, this little bitty hut. We walk inside of this little bitty hut. And there are all these little wide-eyed followers of Jesus that never seen anybody look like me or Brian before. They didn't speak our language. We didn't speak their language. We had a translator with us, but you can just tell when you walk in, it's just, it's, it's, it's one of those moments in your life that just is in, you just, it's just a moment with God. And we sit down in that little room that is packed with these believers and nobody says anything. And they start singing. And as quick as I could get my phone out and hit record, here's what I heard. sitting there and these grandparents, these moms and dads and every little boy and girl they're just leaning into that song with everything in them worshiping the same God that we're sitting here this morning on the other side of the world. And, and here's what hit me. God 
is alive and at work all over the world. And in eternity past, he established a story that is right now being written in history as we know it. And one day, I was with a tribe that is going to be in that glorious scene in Revelation chapter 5. Every tribe, tongue, people, some of those people. Listen, you'll never meet some of them this side of heaven. But listen to me. You will meet them there. You'll meet them. And you'll hear their story. And they'll hear your story. And it's a part of a really big story. The mission is global. But listen to me. The mission is also local. It's local. If you got in your car today and drove four miles in any direction of our campus, you would drive through seven zip codes. In those seven zip codes that are within a four-mile radius of our church campus, there lives 262,000 people. The latest census from the United States government tells us that of those 262,000 people, I want you to look at this number on the screen, 242,000 of them have no relationship with Jesus Christ. Two hundred forty-two thousand of the two hundred sixty-one thousand live within a four-mile radius of our campus are not connected to an evangelical church at all—a church that would preach the gospel as you and I would understand it to be. And here's what I want you to hear me say today: You think you live here because you chose to live here, retire here, get a job here. Here's what I want you to understand today: God put you here by His sovereign hand. To be on mission with Him in using your job, your skill, your passion, your household to share in His mission of reaching those 242,000 people that live within a four-mile radius of our campus. Yeah, it's global, but I'm telling you, it's also local. Let me tell you why you live in the house you live in. Not because you decided that was the best one for you. Let me tell you ultimately why you live there. God put you there to be on mission with Him and sharing the story with the people that live around you. That'll let you see your neighbors differently. They're not inconveniences or difficulties in your life. Your neighbors are people that God loves so much that He put you there in the middle of them because He wants them to hear the story and they're going to hear it through you. We're a part of a much bigger story. The mission is global. The mission is local. But let me close by saying this. I want you to see the last phrase of this text I read for you today. The last phrase of verse 12 says this. These are things into which the angels long to look. You didn't get it. So I'm going to tell you what it means. That phrase, long to look, is the Greek expression for somebody who is leaning out their window so that they can look closely at what's happening 
on the street outside where they live. Maybe it's an event, a parade, a wedding party. Something exciting is passing by. And so they would lean out. They'd get right on the edge and lean out their window in anticipation of being able to see what's happening on the street below. Peter says, there's a story. It started in eternity past. It's being carried out in history. It's moving towards a grand climax. And here's what he says. The angels in heaven know where the end is. They just don't know how it's going to get there. And so the angels in heaven this morning, as we're gathered here, the angels in heaven are leaning out the windows of heaven. And with anticipation and excitement, they are watching as the church of Jesus Christ joins in the great mission of God. They, with eagerness and anticipation, are watching as the story of God is being fleshed out in our lives. And with an excitement, they are leaning in to watch. As we gather here, there are angels today that are leaning in to see the mission of God carried out. As we join in God's activity on the other side of the world, there are angels that are leaning in, hanging on every word, watching the story of God be played out. And let me show you what happens in the end. I read to you at the beginning, Revelation chapter 5, that scene where every tribe, tongue, people, nation, we're around the throne worshiping Jesus. I want you to look what happens next. Revelation chapter 5. I want you to look at verse number 11. John says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. You, You get it? Here they've been leaning in. All this time they've been watching. They're not allowed to really be a part of the redemptive mission of God. They're just bystanders that are watching as the church of Jesus Christ is carrying out the mission. And they've just seen the glorious climax. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And the angels just can't keep it in any longer. Look what it says. The angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and Glory and blessing. They're leaning in right now as the story is being played out. But when they see the end, the angels will rejoice in a celebratory chorus because our story is but a really small part of a really big story.